Hey, DIY Recording Gang, this is Vadim. We have a great episode for you today. On today's episode, Ben and I pull up some stems from uh, like a quasi-mixing contest. It, it says it's not a contest, but there's some prizes, so I don't <laughs> fully understand that myself. But we downloaded the stems, which are really well recorded, really well played, and they came with like a PDF that explained a little bit about the miking techniques and the mics that were used so we go through those stems. There's only eight stems. Uh, we talk about each one, the miking techniques that were used, and what we like about them. So it gives you a great opportunity to hear some raw stems that were really well recorded. We also talk about mixing, which we don't do a lot on this podcast because it's a really a recording and producing podcast, not a mixing podcast. But we do think it's important for the DIY recording community to understand what mixing is and what it can do for even well-recorded stems. So we talk about the characteristics of a good mix and the mixing process. And then Ben and I actually both did some quick mixes of the stems. And we also have the artist's finished mix, which this is just a live version of the song. I think there is a more produced version of the song out there. But in any case, we talk about how we approach the mix a little bit without having heard the artist's mix. And then we play the mixes back to back. So a lot of stuff in this episode. We hope you enjoy it. We also encourage you guys to go and download these stems, take a listen to them, maybe do your own mix, and post them in the Facebook group. All right, enjoy. You are listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. All right, welcome to another episode of the DIY Recording Guys. I'm your host, Vadim Karaz from Calm Frog Recording. And I'm also your host, Benjamin Hall from Dreamloud Studio. How's it going, everyone? <laughs> How you doing, Ben? Doing good, man. What's new with you? Um, I got a little, I got a funny DIY story for you. You may notice that my hair is looking a little shorter than it usually does. I forgot to ask you, I, I was hoping that you didn't break quarantine to get that haircut. No, I I didn't. So so the thing with my hair is like, <laughs> my hair is crazy. My hair grows in in random directions. It's it's very uh, it's got a lot of entropy, right? And so, for it's really hard for me to get a good haircut. And for years and years, I just I couldn't get a good haircut. Like in high school, I wore a baseball cap like pretty much every day. <sighs> and a couple of years ago, I found this one lady who works at a barber shop like ten minutes down the road. And she crushes it. Like she nails it every time. And I don't even, she never asks me what I want. Like she just remembers, right? So it's great. But obviously the, the barbershop is closed now with quarantine. So yeah, I haven't gotten a haircut in like two or three months and my hair just grows just outward radially. So, um, <laughs> so here's the DIY tie-in. Yesterday, I just got into the bathtub with some, some, <laughs> some clippers and just and just went went nuts on it, and um, I did a terrible job. It doesn't look good, but, but honestly, it's not even it's not even the bottom five haircuts I've ever gotten in my life. It's so it could have been worse. That's is what pretty I'm saying. good. It'll grow back, I hope, and uh, I don't have to really go anywhere <laughs> for a little while. So anyway, that's my that's it my DIY good, DIY non recording story. I mean, thankfully for you, you've got a, a nice shaped head. So oh, even you. if it's short, you <laughs> it's still going to look good. I, I'm, I'm blessed with a n nicely shaped head as well. So I can always, if I ever screw it up, then I can always just buzz it. 
What do you What do you do? Okay. Do you go somewhere or you do it yourself? I've cut my own hair for the last ten years or no something. No kidding. Like that. So what's your strategy? Yeah. You use, you got double mirror. Double mirror. Yeah. And my arm gets tired really quick. Wow. That's impressive, man. But um, I I have. I have an easy haircut though. Like I just do the, uh, what do they call that? The um, undercut basically. So I just trim the sides really short and then let the top grow long. So it's, it's not that hard. You got a couple, couple different layers going on there. It's not, um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's not easy. That's, that's impressive. Well, thanks man. It's for a similar reason though. I guess I'll give my, my own story on this. Similar to you in high school, um, my hair is super frizzy and curly so I just had this massive fro and okay. with all the humidity in Western Pennsylvania, like my hair would just be out of control and I never knew what to do with it or how to treat it. Um, but on top of that, I just felt like haircuts were so traumatizing to me because I didn't know what to ask <laughs> for and, and the hairstylist never knew what to do with my hair. So I just yeah. always remember like, cause I, I didn't keep up with it on a every two weeks basis. It would be like, oh, after two or three months time to go get a haircut and the change of having such long hair to short hair would just be so traumatizing. I would yeah. just think I'm never going to get a haircut again. Yeah, I have the same problem. I was always jealous of people who <laughs> whose hair just always looked the same because they would just, I don't know, they had it down. They would just go in every couple of weeks and get it, you know, get it trimmed. It would always look the same. And mine, yeah, you go through these fluctuations and like you never knew. For me, it was like I would say two out of every five haircuts looked good. Well, like growing up so like it was just a roll of the dice i was like if this doesn't look good then you know i have to uh walk around with terrible hair for a couple of weeks it's no fun <laughs> oh my gosh i had yeah. no idea we had this in common i don't even know how we got taught this is my diy banter oh yeah yeah diy yeah let's, yeah let's get into it what are we talking about today other than haircuts so so today um i'm gonna steal your thunder because it was in your notes but uh Oh, no, I'm in the wrong notes. Shoot. <laughs> uh, but Mark, uh, what was his last name? Mark Colber. It's our community member. Yes, Mark Colber. Yes. Thank you, Mark. He posted something very cool in our DIY Guys community page on Facebook. And this gives another reason why all of you listeners out there, if you are not a member of the DIY Guys community, you should join up now because there's a lot of great discussion in there. Anyways, he posted this cool, it's not really a competition, but it's a contest basically uh, done by the company Lewitt. They make microphones. I'm not sure what else they do, but they make quality microphones. And uh, an artist with the name of Avec, her band, while we're all in quarantine, put together a home recording of her song, Home. And they used all Lewitt microphones, so Lewitt put out this contest, basically giving the recorded stems, untreated recorded stems out for free for us to do whatever we want with. And uh, you can also win some prizes too. You can win, I, bas I basically think it's a couple different tiers of microphones. A first, second, and third prize, I think, is, is, is what you can win. Uh, what, are, what are stems, Ben? Good question. Uh, so stems, it's basically in the recording world what we call the recorded individual tracks that we use to make up a song. Uh, and in this example, there were eight stems, so eight different recorded tracks that they used to make this song. Um, and you could have anything from one up to over 100 stems in a song. <laughs> 
<laughs> as I like to do so often. Only you're getting up up to triple digits, I think. <laughs> I keep making fun of you for, even though you only did it once. Yeah. Yeah, there's no right or wrong number of stems to have. It's, I think it's a good rule of thumb to have the least possible to make to make your song come together. I mean, there's no reason to add more and more layers if you don't need them. That's true. The, the, the caveat there is the more stems you have, the more kind of flexibility you have to get in and tweak individual things. So like, you know, you could use a single microphone to record your whole band. That would give you one stem. But then all the processing you do is kind of applied across the board to, your, to everything, which is not ideal for mixing. So there is some sweet spot there where I agree with you. Like you don't want to have more than you need, but you want to have enough individual stems broken out that you have some flexibility in the mix, right? Yeah, and we can dive in and talk about that too with this example of this song. So to kind of summarize everything that we're doing today with this is uh, we thought it would be a great idea for both Vadim and I to download these stems and just talk about what we like about how they're recorded because they are really great stems. They've been recorded really well by a professional band and really good musicians. So this will give you guys a really good example of what's possible to capture uh, in your home DIY setup. And this is a good, I remember whenever I was learning how to mix and how to record and all those kind of things, it was so valuable to be able to hear, okay, what does the raw track sound like? Because it was always mysterious to me. How much processing, how much doctoring up are they doing in the mixing phase versus mm -hmm. the recording phase? And I think the mind-blowing thing to me is that uh, so much of the final product of a song after it's done mixing has to do with how, how high the quality is of the recording in the first place. Yeah. Because I, 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 I think I used to think that, oh, all that stuff is, I could fix that in the mixing phase, or we could fix this later. Like, let's just get the recording done, and let's just play around with plugins later. But it really is immensely important uh, to focus on the recordings. And so that's what we wanted to talk about today. To your point, hearing the, the stems gives you a nice kind of target. Like, okay, well, they recorded an acoustic guitar in this song. It's recorded very well, so it kind of gives you a target of like, okay, my raw recorded sound, if I'm going for this type of tone, should be somewhere in this ballpark. So it gives you a nice, a nice kind of target. And so what we're going to do today is we're, we're going to look at some of these stems. We're going to actually play them. We're going to talk about them. Actually, it'd be cool if uh, we could pull up the PDF because I think they mentioned in there... I have the PDF up right now. ...the types of mics they used and how they kind of did stuff because... It is a very minimalistic setup. I mean, it, like you said, there, there's only eight stems for this whole song, and it's well-produced and, and well-recorded. So we'll, we'll look at that, and then we'll talk a little bit about mixing and what mixing does to the stem. So kind of we have well-recorded stems. If we play them, they'll sound pretty good. But then we can see, you know, talk about what actually happens in the mixing phase. We, we don't talk a lot about mixing on this podcast because it's not a mixing podcast, right? This podcast is really mm -hmm. for recording and producing. But of course, mixing is an important part of, of getting a song finished. And we haven't really talked about why that is and, you know, why you need mixing. So this is going to give us an opportunity to kind of look at what mixing actually does for a song. Well put. Well put, Vadim. Should we start with the stems or start with... Um, Let's just play the, the whole song 
um, just the recording balance together so we can uh, have an ear for how it sounds. Okay. All right. So here's so here's the last chorus. This is basically the stems. They've been balanced just for for volume. So no other processing has been done. Ben actually did this. He he just got the stems and he just kind of tweaked some faders around. So this is basically what the raw recorded stems sound like together. Here we go. So actually, it sounded like you did do a little bit of panning as well, yeah? I did do a little bit of panning. Um, okay. Yeah, so the, they might not be all up the middle. Gotcha. Uh, I think all those sources were all those sources were mono sources besides the keyboard, which was a stereo right. signal. Yep, that's true. So there's basically eight stems. We'll describe what they are here quickly, and then we could play them kind of a little bit individually and talk about how they were recorded. So there's there's a lead vocal track. There's a background vocal track. Those are both mono sources. There is a keyboard. It sounded like a keyboard, or do you think it was actually a piano? I think it was a keyboard, because you could see uh, included in the PDF with this um, mixing competition, there's a link to a YouTube video showing their live performance, and it looks like a Korg keyboard with probably two line outputs that were just plugged straight into an interface. Gotcha. Yeah, it was it was very clean. So there's that's a stereo. That's the only stereo file is that keyboard output. Then there's a main acoustic guitar, a secondary acoustic guitar, a harmonica, and then a kind of a, a two drum mics. One of them is basically capturing the the low end, the kick, and the other one is capturing kind of it's set up from the overhead position is capturing basically the snare. And a little bit of, mm -hmm. what is that? It's kind of like a closed hat, I guess. Looking at the videos, so the drummer has two drums. He has a floor tom on his left and a snare a drum tom. on his right. Gotcha. And um, in his left hand, he's using a mallet to get that kick drum sound or a deep, deep tone out of the tom. And then he has what's called a hot rod, which is a whole bunch of wooden dowels taped together. And he's just tapping the edge of the snare drum, just the rim of it. And that's what's giving that hi-hat tap cool. type of sound. Yeah, this is this is super interesting to me. I'm I actually that makes sense that it's a it's actually a tom. Um we talked about in the in the recording drums episode and in like the rapid fire at the end, we talked about how you would record a drum kit with only two mics. This is basically what they've done here is just two microphones set up. Mm -hmm. Um which was which was fun to work with. Maybe let's start there. Let me play back a little bit of that. Uh, that that mic on that tom and what is what what are they using on that tom? Is it a large diaphragm condenser? I have it all brought up here. So on the tom, they have a. Uh, it looks like a dynamic mic, like a tiny one, um, similar to those clip-on style that Sennheiser have. I think they described it in the PDF, didn't they? Yeah, it's a dynamic instrument microphone, the DTP three forty TT. It says it's designed for toms. Works also great for snare and amps. Uh, super cardioid pattern. 
Gotcha. So so they just have that positioned at a forty five degree angle to the the head of the tom, just a couple inches above it. So that, that makes sense that it's super cardioid. I believe super cardioid focuses primarily on what's in front of it, but it does have a little bit of sensitivity directly in back. That kind of makes sense because I'll play it back here. You can kind of hear that it's pre- it's predominantly getting the body of the tom, but it's also picking up the snare and the little, that's the edge, the snare edge as well. Here's what it sounds like. So yeah, you can hear the snare is quiet there, but you can you can definitely still hear it. It makes sense to use a super cardioid, uh, cardioid dynamic instrument microphone here because it has rejection directly to the sides of it. And the way that this setup, this recording setup is, the toms on the floor toms on the left, and the snare is directly to the right of that. So if you were to use a condenser microphone, and there's no reason why you couldn't use a condenser on that floor tom. The only problem is the condenser is a lot more sensitive, so that snare drum, when he's playing it, would be so much more loud in that microphone, and it would be hard to get that separated out of that um, that floor tom, especially, and we'll get into this later when we talk about mixing, but I believe you did the same thing. I treated that floor tom a lot more like a kick drum, so I was trying to get rid of a lot more of the mid-range and high-end information. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, yeah, to your point, that like I said, that super cardioid pattern, if you can imagine like a snowman upside down. So like that's kind of what the polar pattern looks like. So they have the the fat part of the snowman down looking at the tom, but then they get a little bit of, you know, pick pick up from the room or whatever else they want, which gives mm-hmm. it more of that. Again, they're not using room mics here, but you wouldn't they don't necessarily want to just close mic everything. They still want to get a little bit of uh, like the mics working together, picking you know a little bit of bleed from one mic to the next, and a little bit of that room sound. So that super cardioid pattern kind of gives you that. And yeah, I did the same thing. The first thing that jumped out at me was like, there's way too much mid range in that to, to have a kick sound that I would want to have. So yeah, I treated that very similarly to how I would treat a, a, a kick drum, where I scooped out a lot of the the mid range there and 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 lopped off some of the high end because that's what I want to get from the other mic, the mic that's looking at the snare. I thought I thought the phase was really good in between the two drum mics. Did you did you play with phase at all? I didn't actually play with phase. Uh just hearing them work together, it didn't even occur to me to check to see if flipping the phase would make it sound better. It just sounded like everything was working together well. Yeah. So I agree. I think it was mic'd really well and, and really intentionally. What we mean by phase is basically like you if you play that that kick sound by itself and then you play it together with I can actually play the uh the, that overhead mic, which is kind of picking up the snare. Here's what that sounds like. You can hear the kick in that mic as well. So if you play those two together and kind of bring them in and out. If there was a phase issue, you might hear a problem, especially in the low end. Like you might hear that the kick sounds good on its own, but when you bring in the second mic, all of a sudden you lose a lot of low end out of the kick. That would be an indication of like a phase problem. So I did do that that check, just bringing one in and out, and the same thing you said. Uh, they sounded good together, so it, it didn't really uh, feel the need to. I still did check it though. I I flipped the phase mm-hmm. on one of the mics just to make sure that I wasn't liking what i heard better 
and I wasn't. So yeah. <laughs> I ended up not not flipping the phase. Here's a here's a here's what that test sounds like. So here's the floor tom, and then I'll bring in the um, the overhead. So you can hear that that kick still or the tom still retains all of the low end it had to me. So that's an indication of of good phase. Yeah. Another trick to hearing if phase is bad too, and I just had this recently from a drum mix that was sent to me, just a, a combination of eight different mics. And when I played it together, I had this sense that the center image completely disappeared. And it sounded instead of, so if you imagine, um, if you're listening to a drum set, just imagine what that looks like. You have toms on the perimeter and then pretty much the kick and snare directly up the middle is what you would expect to hear just from looking at it. So that's what we intuitively know in our heads to listen for. Even if we don't understand that, we know that things directly in front of us sound uh, like they're coming from the center because they're hitting both of our ears at the same time. So what I wound up hearing when I played this drum track, it sounded like the kick and the snare were completely gone from the middle and that they were playing from both Ooh, yeah. sides of my head simultaneously. And that is a, a an absolute, and it doesn't just have to be with um, with drums, but in that particular situation, I knew instantly that there was a really bad phase problem. Yes. Yeah. Basically that center channel is kind of, is kind of being canceled out. Let's just, I'm going to try to flip the phase on this and just see if, if we get any, any of that effect. Uh, I'm going to play it and I'm going to flip the phase on the overhead mic and we'll just see what happens. So here's both mics cool. together. That's normal phase. Here's flip phase. To my ear, it it does like low. It, it rolls off the low end, and you get this mid bump, which is exactly what we don't want to begin with in the toms. Basically, some of the low frequencies cancel out, and some of the mid mid frequencies build up. So uh, that's a nice thing to do anytime you're using multiple microphones on a single source is to is to pick one microphone or one channel as your kind of your reference, and check the phase of the other microphones to that one microphone. Um, and just hear what you hear. Sometimes that phase cancellation, I've heard of it actually being, you know, used to, to your advantage in something like recording a bass cabinet. Uh, you can actually use it to cancel out some frequencies that maybe make things muddy or whatever. But um, mm. basically just try flipping the phase and seeing what you like better. Yeah, well said, Vadim. Uh, let's move on to that overhead mic. They used, uh, so they used this to capture an overhead image to get that side click of the snare that is acting like a hi-hat and also the snare. Um, they used another large di diaphragm condenser. Uh, the cool thing about this one that they used, it's the LCT441 Flex. It has um, a selectable polar pattern. You can choose from eight different ones. And I don't know which one they used in the uh, in the recording, but I think that that's pretty cool. So you can go from um, a normal cardioid to a figure eight to a super cardioid. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and, and describe how is the mic set up? What is uh, where is it physically looking? It's a good question. It looks like it's about three to four feet 
above the snare, but it's angled in a way so that it looks like it's pointed right in between both the floor tom and the snare. Okay. So it looks like they were trying to grab both an overhead image of both the tom and the snare, focused more on the snare, but also grabbing the stick attack from the tom. Yeah, and you're definitely and you're definitely getting some of that. Let me just play that one more time by itself. I think you're right. And it does do a nice job of capturing that stick attack, which is which is cool because that kind of gives it that uh like that feel of like a beater uh click right on a kick mm-hmm. drum. It gives you a little bit of that that punch. Okay, cool. Um do the let's talk about the acoustic guitar next. Yeah, and let's talk about both acoustics because there's yeah. two acoustics in this performance. Uh, there's the main rhythm and then there's what they call an overdub. And that overdub has some rhythm guitar parts in it, but it also has some more lead type of thing. Um, but the main rhythm, they used the same mic that they used on the lead vocal, which is a large diaphragm condenser, very nice. And it looks like they have it um, about a foot off of the guitar uh, facing directly towards where the the neck meets the body. So right about the, what would that be, the 15th, 12th or 15th fret. Right. That's, that's my favorite technique as well, my favorite single mic technique for acoustic guitar. I actually like to put, I take a large diaphragm condenser microphone, I line it up with the 12th fret, about a foot off of the guitar, but then I turn it so that it's facing where the joint is, where the, that joint between the neck and the body is. And I find that that kind of gives typically a, a really workable result for a single mic source. What do you do? Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, a lot of times I like to use two small diaphragm condensers and I'll have the one kind of facing the, the sound hole at a 45 degree angle to the guitar pointing up from behind the player's hand. Because if you get it right in front, I've had this problem happen before, if you get it right in front of the hand too much, then as the hand covers the hole and uh, moves away from the hole, then you get this um, like a volume wah, wah, wah. <laughs> yeah, type of sound. Yeah. So you have, to, you have to get in a position that um, uh, where you don't get any blockage of the sound coming out of the sound hole. But that's the first mic, and that captures more of the low end or the body of the guitar. And then I'll have the other one um, up on the neck, pointed towards uh, where the neck and the body meet, but I have it um, closer to where the player's hands are, so around the 7th fret or so. And then I combine those two together, um, so you get a nice combination of low end and um, string noise. Interesting. Yeah, that's similar. My my two mic technique, I my the first mic is that large diaphragm condenser at the twelfth fret and looking at the neck joint about a foot away from the guitar. The second one I, I also like to use a, a small diaphragm condenser. And I like to look at basically the uh just just next to the bridge where the strings attach to the uh to the bridge of the guitar. And yeah, I'm, I like mm. the the nice top end sparkle there. And the reason I typically like to use two mics if I can is because then you can get some natural kind of stereo separation where you can blend those two mics to taste and then pan 
pan them one off to one side a little bit and one off to the other side a little bit and instantly mm-hmm. get this kind of stereo acoustic guitar, which is uh, which is nice a lot of times, especially if it's kind of like the main thing going on, the main instrument. The other thing I wanted to mention about this recording too, so we talked about uh, mainly the rhythm guitar, but that overdub, they're using a small diaphragm condenser that's pointed in basically the same spot as the large diaphragm is for the rhythm, but the small diaphragm is only about a couple inches away from the neck of the guitar. And I wanted oh, really? to talk a little bit about, yeah, and I wanted to talk a little bit about what um, what kind of differences in sound you get with using the two different mics and miking techniques, and also why would you choose to do one or the other? Um, so from listening to the tracks, I think that that rhythm guitar is probably the best acoustic it's probably the best sounding acoustic recording i've ever heard i would say really i really love that so- oh yeah it sounds so good and i get some pretty good acoustic uh recordings in my studio but i don't know if i've ever got one that sounds as good and part of that too is the guitar and the player because it just sounds so balanced from there's a nice high-end sparkle and the body there's no weird like overtones or mm. or really like subby um nuisance frequencies you have to carve out it just sounds really good yeah i really didn't i did hardly anything uh eq wise let's listen to that this is the the main acoustic with the uh recorded with the large diaphragm condenser here's what it sounds like Yeah, I I have to agree with you. It it sounds really great. A lot of times, recording acoustic guitar also is also affected very much by the room you're in, and you do tend to get buildups usually of some frequency that you have to address in the mix. And mm-hmm. in this case, it's really well balanced across the frequency spectrum. Maybe I think I might have done something a little bit on on the uh, like 100 hertz area because of that kind of thump. Um, and that was mm-hmm. not because I don't like it by itself. It was because I kind of chose, we'll talk about it later, but I chose to use the, the piano as more of the bass element and I wanted the acoustic to be more of a, of a mid range element, but yeah, I agree with you. Mm. Very nice sounding recording. So, um, yeah. Do you want to listen to the difference or talk about the difference? Uh, what did you hear on that secondary acoustic part with the small diaphragm condenser? The interesting thing is, and probably the most recognizable thing, is the large diaphragm is a lot more, because it's also a condenser, it's a lot more sensitive, and they have it a foot off of the guitar. And we talked about proximity effect in a previous episode, but the farther away you are from a source, the more ratio of the room you're going to get in your recording. And in this case, it's a really nice thing, but there is a little bit more blend of the room ambience in the Mm. rhythm guitar than there is in the overdub just simply because the microphones spaced farther away in the rhythm recording versus the small diaphragm that's only a couple inches away from that overdub guitar yeah yeah that's a really good point yeah the farther are are the farther away you are the more the room comes into play and so you're saying that for that second guitar they had the microphone much closer it's also a small diaphragm condenser, so it's more sensitive to some higher frequencies. Uh, and that probably was a conscious decision because they didn't want to get too much low-end buildup 
from the two guitars. So let's listen to that uh, second acoustic. Yeah, it's very kind of bright, a lot of brightness to it, mm -hmm. and not a ton of low end. You play them back and forth. Yeah, that's instantly recognizable. Yeah, yeah. You could hear how much. Let me play this one more time. The section looped. You could hear the difference in the uh, in the low end. I mean, also playing different notes, but there's clearly a tonal difference there where you hear a lot more low end on with the with the large diaphragm condenser mic, and that's both because of the microphone and where it's placed, where it's looking. I think in a lot of situations, the easier thing to do here would just be record both parts using the same microphone, but I'm guessing that they probably chose to do this so that they could have more separation between um, the same instrument, especially because they're playing similar parts. So they use two different miking techniques and two different microphones on the same instrument to kind of get more sonic separation from the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, where do you want to go next? All right, let's move on to... What haven't we talked about yet? Um, let's talk about the keyboard a little bit. Yep. Now, there weren't any... I don't think there were any mics, at least from what I could see, there weren't any mics used on the keyboard. They just had the internal sound captured from uh, probably a pair of stereo line outputs going into an interface. But before I knew that, I did have some notes because I wasn't sure if it was a live piano or not. Um, so my notes were that it's nice and warm. It didn't sound too bright, like not a lot of key attack. And what I thought at first was that it either was a upright piano that they just had the lid covered, or mm -hmm. maybe it was a baby grand that they had the lid, lid covered when they were miking it. So if you're ever, and you should know all about miking uh, pianos, right, Vadim, from your, from <laughs> yeah. your picture on <laughs> the right, community. Right. <laughs> yeah. But... Um, you can change the tone drastically uh, based on where you're miking it, where you're placing the microphones, or if you have that lid open or closed. Right. Yeah, let's listen to that and what it sounds like. Honestly, that's a really nice tone for a keyboard. I mean, it it sounds, it doesn't sound too keyboardy. You know those those Casio keyboard instantly recognizable tone yeah. where you're like, that's a keyboard. <laughs> I'd know it anywhere. Uh, yeah, this one sounds yeah. this one sounds pretty good. Yeah, it sounds really nice. Um, and then the other the only other music element in here that's not a vocal is what they call a melodica. I don't know how that's different than a harmonica, but it sounds the same to me. <laughs> Um, and I don't actually know how they captured that. They, that might also be a keyboard thing. No, because you can hear breath in it. It definitely was mic'd. Let me take in the note. I don't know. Oh, yeah, I see what they used. Take a listen here while. Well, it definitely says they used a mic for it. It does say they used a the mic? Yeah, they used the large diaphragm condenser that they also used on the rhythm guitar track and the lead vocal. Okay. They just don't have any uh, video or images of it. 
it's it's very evenly recorded. So I I had the same suspicion that it might have been a virtual instrument. Like the dynamics are very even on it. The um you know the playing is very even as well. So that could just be a sign of a good player. But one thing to to note here is that this is why I think we've talked about this in one of the early episodes on choosing gears. Having a large diaphragm condenser microphone, especially if you're working in this type of genre, will go a long way for you. You can get a lot of mileage out of it. You can see here they're using it on the vocals. They're using it on the acoustic guitar. They're using it on the harmonica or the melodica. And what else? They use a different mic for the overhead, right? It was, or was it the same one? Uh, similar. Different mic, but similar. You could have used that on the overhead, though. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, so you can get a lot of versatility out of that large diaphragm condenser microphone, especially for for these these this type of music and acoustic instruments. The only reason why they might not have used it on the overhead, and this is more of a joke than anything else, but they might not have used it on the overhead because they were worried about the drummer hitting it because it's probably the most expensive mic out of the <laughs> pair that they were using. <laughs> You know what? That's a good point. Yeah, it, that is uh, something to consider when you're when you're miking a drum kit. Is uh, is it within reach of the drummer, and how precise is your drummer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, definitely, definitely something to consider. All right, let's talk about the vocals. Let's do it. So they used two different mics. Um, they used that same large di- uh, large diaphragm condenser mic that they used on the melodica and the rhythm guitar on the lead vocal. And then they used a different, let me look it up here. Okay, it's a condenser capsule microphone, a handheld on the backup vocal performance. Let's listen to that and then we can can talk about our thoughts. This is the, the lead vocal. While you feel like home, and I don't wanna let go. With you, I'm home. I keep holding on. So some of the things that jumped out at me listening to that, first of all, again, just like the acoustic guitar, I thought the tonal balance was very good. There wasn't really anything that any unpleasant buildup anywhere. I did want a little more brightness, a little more shimmer on the top end when I heard it. But the other thing that instantly jumped out to me, and you could hear it, especially on that second oh, oh, oh part, I'm, I can't sing, that's terrible. Yeah. Cut that out. But, <laughs> that's fine. But um, the dyna- it's very dynamic performance, right? There's, um, you can kind of hear the volume jumping up and down. So that is an indication when you hear that, when you hear kind of some syllables jumping out at you and other syllables hiding, that's an indication that you have a lot of dynamic range and maybe want a little bit of compression, which is fine. I thought it was a really well-recorded vocal in general. What were your thoughts? Kind of along the same lines. Um, even though it's really that part in particular is really dynamic, I kept thinking that I was screwing up my compression settings when I was mixing it. But it was just that the volume almost completely cuts on that second O part there. Yeah. Just the way that she sings it. Yep. Um, but besides that, I thought that one thing that I took note of was that this is a really good vocalist because she knows how to to sing and be consistent. Um, you could tell a really amateur vocalist whenever they have a loud belty part and it's 50 decibels louder than their quiet singing part. Yeah. She's very controlled, like all the way through. And there is some, there is some room for 
quiet parts and louder parts, but she's very intentional about it. It has nothing to do with where in the range it is. It's all the emotion that she's putting behind the performance. Yes. And you could even see it visually in the stem where there's not like these really big spikes and then these really, really tiny sections. It's a very even performance. And I'm curious in the video if you could see actually, is she, um, is she modulating her distance from the mic at all? It looks to me like she's pretty much right up on the microphone the whole time. And I mean, she is performing when she does this because it's also videoed. And, you know, as as we all know, a good vocalist, anytime the camera's on them, they have to perform. Right. So (laughs) she's putting a little bit of her body language and stuff into it. So it's not a it's not a perfect vocal performance where she's in the exact spot every time. But it doesn't really matter. I did think it was interesting, though, that she's basically an inch to two inches away from this microphone, which in general, I would think that I'd probably be a little bit farther away, like six inches or a foot. Um, that tends to work better for large diaphragm condensers, especially on a vocal like this. But they might have done that for two reasons. One, either they wanted more low end in her voice to be captured by the microphone, or Uh, I could see she's singing in her bedroom or living room and maybe the acoustic treatment of the room isn't very good. So they wanted to eliminate uh, any room noise that they would get. I think you nailed it. Yeah, that those are the kind of the two considerations. Getting closer gives you the benefit of a drier performance. It takes some of the room out of it, although it sounds like they have a pretty nice sounding room. Uh, It also can you can also take advantage of that proximity effect. And if you need a little more low and you could get a little bit closer, it's very, it's very mic dependent. I have some large diaphragm condenser mics and I find that the sweet spots vary, first of all, by microphone mm-hmm. and second of all, by vocalist. So it's something you have, you may have to uh, play around with. I am surprised that uh, she's that close. Is there a pop filter as well? I think it's built into this microphone. Okay, cool. That's also another thing though, too, that I noticed about the performance is that her S's are very controlled and that's another key thing that a vocalist will do or you can learn to do as a vocalist is not to sing those s's so hard like that you can Mm. kind of roll them off into other vowels and i think that she intentionally did that and did that really well yeah i agree with you it's a a very controlled performance uh listen to the second section again where you can really hear uh some of the dynamics just listen for some syllables that kind of jump out at you and others that are quieter with you, I'm home. I keep holding on. Yeah, it's it's a really good performance. I mean, this is this is the type of performance you want when you're recording. Uh, compression is something that you add just because it makes things sound better. The human voice is very dynamic as an instrument, so I thought it was uh, very well done. And you said for the background vocals or the secondary vocal part, it was a it was a different microphone, right? Yeah, it was uh, a condenser microphone, but a small one, like handheld condenser. Interesting. Yeah. So, so again, I think um, using two different microphones kind of gives you two different characteristics. When you have both of these vocals singing at the same time, it probably is, again, a conscious decision maybe to get a little bit of separation between those two. You get them a little bit, a little more of a tonal difference, even though it is, it's two different vocalists as well for the main vocal part and the secondary vocal part, right? Yeah. Another thing you can think about too, um, in this situation, the background vocalist was also the keyboardist. So maybe a microphone that's a little bit more super cardioid or directional would reject the sound of her uh, hands hitting the keys 
because that would get picked up by a condenser microphone. That's a very good point. So she's playing it and they're recording her vocal performance at the same time. It's basically a live performance they're capturing of the entire band. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, here's what that background vocal sounds like. You feel like home and I don't want to let go. Also, just a great performance. With you, I'm home. I keep holding on. And and also, I think that there's a little bit less low end in that in that um, in that vocal part as well, which is nice because that that typically is um, where we want it since it's not the main element. The main element is the main vocal. Here's what they sound like together. While you feel like home, and I don't want to let go. It already sounds great. There's really nothing that needed editing. The performances were good rhythmically. It was pretty tight. All the pitches seemed to be where they need to be, which is, again, an indication of a great vocal performance. And this is what we talk about, where you can get these great captures at the source. That means you have to do less processing down the road. And the less processing you have to do in general, the better. It's like food, yeah. right? <laughs> Yeah. And I I mean that's a good point. Like I don't think that these tracks were edited at all. Like they could have been. I mean there's there's nothing to say that you couldn't edit these and make them tighter. But I don't I think that they just nailed a performance. I don't know how many takes they did of this, but this take was so good that they just left everything the way that it was. Cuz you can hear if you solo in and put a click on, they're not perfect performances. But they're close right. enough that you can get away with it. Absolutely. And especially for what they're doing, it's like a very intimate acoustic performance. It doesn't need to be super tight to the grid. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it works really well. I thought it was a, it was a nice job. I didn't do any editing. I, I didn't spend a ton of time on it, but uh, doing the mix just because we just decided <laughs> at the last minute to do this. But um, it Pretty really much. didn't need much. There was nothing that sounded wrong, quote unquote. And that's like one of my favorite quotes I think I've mentioned is, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be right. And this is definitely right. Uh, one thing that I also noticed right away was there's there's no bass guitar, right? There's no, there's no, um, they don't have a bass player playing on this performance. And so that's something, you know, that's an arrangement decision. And then you have mm. to kind of consider, okay, well, we still, we talk about, you know, characteristics of a good mix. We still want to fill up the frequency spectrum. So an interesting thought process was like, okay, what am I going to use to fill out that bass elements? Did you have that thought process at all? Not a ton. I, I did think about that this is arranged really well. So even though there's only eight stems, eight different things happening, they do a really good job of um, building the song throughout. And there's parts where it builds up to a climax and then it pulls back a little bit and then pushes forward again. So just because there's four or five instrumentalists and eight different stems, that doesn't mean everybody's doing all their parts at the same time mm. and the whole way through the song. So the song starts with just an acoustic guitar and then the keys come in for two measures just to play a little motif and then they back out completely. Mm. Uh, then the vocal comes in. I just thought that was interesting that in general and, and that first i don't know first minute of the song there's only two or three elements happening just to kind of build that intimate feel and and build up from there um 
But on to your question that you asked me about um, filling up the frequency spectrum, I kind of took a little bit of a different approach and I liked how good the low end on the acoustic guitar sounded. Mm. I kind of used that as my um, substitute for the bass guitar because it kind of did have a really nice sounding low end around 100 hertz or 150 hertz right around where a bass guitar would sit. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't, I think I use the the piano, as I said, or the keyboard as more of my bass element. But listening back to this now, as we're talking about it, I was like, yeah, that, that thump on the gu- acoustic guitar was actually pretty nice. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a good option there. Also, it's interesting to, you know, take note of, they did a really good job of using what was available to them, I guess is what, how I want to say it. So the drummer in particular, he's just using a couple of sticks with a floor tom and a snare drum. And he's kind of using the snare as both his snare and his hi-hat. And instead of miking up a kick drum, he's using his tom, or at least I thought that that's what they were going for from just hearing the stems. And it was confirmed when I heard their final mix but I thought that they were using that tom as more of a kick drum rather than just a tom part. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, in fact, in my in my session, I called it a kick, even though I saw that the, the stem was called uh, floor tom. I called it kick because that's how I was really treating it. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so, so the one thing that um, listening to it that I kind of thought, okay, I want to change this is that there are a lot of mono sources as we talked about. The only really stereo source is that keyboard. So the track, if you just play everything back, everything kind of comes right up the middle, which which is okay. But I felt like I wanted a little bit of, of width here. I wanted some elements out to the sides. And then listening to your mix, Ben, you clearly had the same thought was you wanted a little bit more width. I think at this point, let's show Once again, just so the listeners can uh, remember what it sounds like, let's just show the level balanced mix and compare that to what they wound up getting. And then we can show what we wound up doing with our mixes and talk about that. Okay. So here's to, uh, yeah, to reground us, here is that level balanced mix. And again, there's a little bit of panning going on, but not, not too much of anything else. Here's what it sounds like. While you... So one one thing that jumps out at me listening to that is that the the vo- there's there's a lot going on in the mid-range. We have an acoustic guitar that's a mid-range instrument. We have the piano is mid-rangey and the vocal is very mid-rangey and those elements are fighting a little bit. So that's one thing to me that jumps out is like I feel like the the keys are obstructing the main vocal a little bit in that kind of mm-hmm. low mid area. Here's the finished mix from who did this mix for them? Do we know? I don't I don't know who did the mix. Okay. So here's the mix that they ended up with. Sorry, I'm going to actually play a little bit of the <laughs> I shouldn't have talked. I want to play a little bit of the level balanced one and I'm going to switch to the uh the finished mix. While you feel like 
do that again, level match it a little bit. Okay. While you feel like So a couple of things that jump out at me is the that Tom is is a lot more like a kick drum. So that's clearly, I think you're right, is what they yeah. were going for. It's a lot punchier. It's got a lot of weight on the very kind of low end, really in that like kind of 60 hertz area. And the main vocal definitely comes to the front. It's, it's much more featured and everything else kind of gets out of its way, which is good because that's kind of the focal point of this part of the chorus. What do you, what do you hear? So when I mix this song, and we're going to show our mixes here, in, or at least the section of it in um, a couple seconds, but I first mixed this without listening to what they finally did because I was just curious what I would come up with without being influenced by their finished product. And what I heard whenever I was mixing it was I wanted to make it sound very poppy and modern with a lot of reverbs, making it sound like it's in a much larger space than it really is in. So after I wound up finishing, I went back and listened to their mix version. And um, I was surprised to hear how kind of intimate they, they kept it. They didn't make it as big as I made my mix. They kind of kept it more true to, which... And thinking about it, it does make a little bit of sense because they released a video along with it. They probably wanted the audio to match the video. So if you see people playing in their homes and all of a sudden what it sounds like is they're playing in a huge arena, that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily make sense with what you're visually seeing. So that's right. probably why they chose to do that um, because they do have a fully or studio produced version of this song on an album and it's huge and pop, just kind of what I talked about before. Uh, but in their mix, the interesting thing to me was, and like you pointed out, you felt like the keys were fighting the vocals. Um, I felt like they scooped pretty much every instrument in the mix, especially the keyboard and the acoustic and allowed the vocal, like the body of the vocal, just to kind of fill up all of the, the center image, which was an interesting choice in, maybe a little bit even surprising to me because a lot of times I like to put vocals on top. And what I mean by that is uh, in the higher end of the, I like to focus the vocal in the higher end of the frequency spectrum or in the higher mid-range area. And it seemed like the focus of the vocal was more in the low mids. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think part of that is we, I tend to work also with louder stuff where there's more going on distorted guitars and so i i have a similar tendency I, I guess before we even play our mixes i just want to talk a little bit about what mixing is and you just listen to kind of just an unmixed version and then the mixed version and there's a couple of things we talk about i think that are characteristics of a good mix and these characteristics i would say really transcend genre so regardless of what genre we're talking mm. about i just want to point out a couple of things and get your takes on them as well one characteristic sure. of a good mix to me is you can hear all the instruments. So when I listen to this chorus, for example, I shouldn't be like, is that, what is that? Is that a melodica? I can hear it sometimes. I should be able to hear each instrument 
Otherwise, why is it there, right? If you can't, I mean, there, there's certainly things to be said for like filling out spaces with synths and, and things like that. But in general, I want to be able to hear the individual components. I also want to have macro dynamics controlled. What I mean by macro dynamics is that, let's say, I don't feel like the verses are too quiet and then the choruses are too loud. So let's say I'm driving in my car. I don't want to have to turn the volume up during the verse so I could hear everything, but then the chorus comes in yeah. and slams me in the face and I have to turn the volume down. So that's macro dynamics on one part of the song to another part of the song. The volume doesn't uh, vary too widely. The next thing is micro dynamics. Micro dynamics are more like we talked about with that vocal part where certain syllables aren't jumping way out and others are hidden. I want to be able to hear all of the all of the words. I don't want certain drum hits to be lost. Those are kind of micro dynamics. Next would be balance across that frequency spectrum. So I don't want to hear like way too much bass and it sounds like there's a blanket over the speakers. I don't want it to be really thin where there's no low end. So I want balance across that uh, 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz range. I also want to hear good use of the stereo field in general. So I don't want everything to be coming up the middle. I want to get a little bit of separation. Same thing front to back. I don't want everything to be right up front in my face and very dry. I want them to be some spatial depth to it. So maybe some elements are closer to me, some elements feel like they're farther away. And then finally, I want to have good translation between listening systems. So I don't want to listen to it on my monitors in my studio and say, that sounds great. And then I listen to it coming out of my cell phone and I don't hear the kick at all because my kick was mm -hmm. all sub frequencies that my cell phone can't represent. And then I don't want to listen to it on my headphones and hear something different. I want to get good. This is called translations, when things sound good across different systems. So those are kind of some of the, the bullet points I had for what a good mix is. Do you have any comments, additions, subtractions? No, I think you hit everything pretty well. Um, sometimes, too, when I'm thinking about a good mix, I think about it being balanced almost like a box. You can think about... From top to bottom, frequency-wise, everything sounds balanced. Like, I can tell if I'm really vibing with a mix that I'm doing in my studio, I feel like all the elements are hitting me from the, the highest end frequency things to the lowest sub-frequency things. They're all hitting me at the same time. I don't get this sense of like, wow, it's all bass and there's no high end. Or there's all high end and no bass. It just feels like everything's hitting you at the same time. And also depth of front to back. And what causes that sense of depth a lot of times, I mean, some of it could be volume, but a lot of times it is use of um, reverbs and delays and doing that in a tasteful way so that you can add or you can decide where things sit in your mix as far as, is this thing going to be right up in front of your face? Normally those are things that don't have any delay or reverb or they have very little, or is this something that sounds like it's coming from, uh, you know, a football field away and that's things that are just drowning in reverb or delays. So that's the only other things I would add. Front to back is a really interesting thing to discuss because it's a, it's a very much a psychoacoustic effect. Like you have, Two headphones, you have two ears, right? Or you have two headphone uh, cups. Yeah. How can you even represent something that's farther away or closer? So this is a psychoacoustic effect. And these are some of the things that you mentioned is one is reverb. Something that's far away is going to have more reverb because by the time the sound gets to you from the source, it's bounced around all over. Like if you're in a large hall, 
Uh, it's bounced around all over the walls and the ceilings. And so what's reaching your ears is not just the direct signal. It's also all of the reflections. So your brain just interprets that as it's farther away. If it hears more reflections, it interprets it as a sound that's farther away. Another thing is what you mentioned is volume. Things that are farther away tend to be a little bit quieter. And the final thing I'll add is EQ. Things that are farther away tend to reach your ears with less high-frequency information, which is to say that um, the high frequencies kind of get lost along the way. They don't bounce off of surfaces as well. The example I like to use is if you're walking by like a nightclub, you can hear the bass, right? You can hear that <laughs> bass coming through the walls. You can't hear any of the hi-hats, right? So that's True. because low frequencies can travel through walls and long distances better than high frequencies. So if you're trying to make a sound sound like it's coming from farther away, those are your tools. One is like a reverb or delay effects. Two is volume and three is EQ. So like you would roll off some of the high frequencies, for example. Yeah, so that's, we just talked about the balance portion of mixing. The other portion of mixing I just call like the flow portion of mixing, which is a little more nebulous of a concept, but I like to think of it as like my energy graph over time. So what's the energy of the song mm. doing, right? I don't want to have just like maxed out energy throughout the whole song because right. that's exhausting and tedious to listen to. We, we've talked about this before. I like to have energy flowing or varying throughout the song and also have a couple of step changes where like maybe, you know, the end of a verse gets really quiet and then the chorus comes in and it kind of hits you. That's what I call a step change in energy and those things are nice. We tend to kind of enjoy that. It grabs the listener's attention and uh, keeps the listener's attention throughout the song. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, with that, uh, let's play. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to play just the balanced version without any processing. And then I'm going to play your mix, Ben. And one thing to listen to in Ben's mix that I liked a lot was that his keys have a really nice space in the mix. They're wide and they kind of fill out that stereo field really nicely. Um, and I also thought you did a really nice job with the vocals as well, where the the secondary vocal parts are kind of nice and wide. The main vocal is, is nice and focused. Mm. So let me start with the uh, unbalanced mix and then play yours. Here we go. While you feel like oh, 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 and I don't with you, I'm oh, 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 I keep holding on. Oh, you're my oh, 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 I won't let you. I won't let you. With you, I'm I also really like the uh, the reverb tail on your main vocal. You can just kind of you can just hear it. It's the length is good. It, if your reverb tail is too long, things start to get muddy. Like the next syllable, the next word tends to be obfuscated a little bit. And I thought yours was really nice. It was a really kind of well timed oh, reverb tail. Let me let me talk about a couple things. Yeah, um, yeah, talk about in it. my mix because I think I think that there. Um, some eye-opening things because it's not all mixing part of its recording as well or doing some tricks with that so i forgot about this trick for a long time and then i recently did it with a band and that's what gave me the idea to do it with this mix so before going into what the trick is i had to make a decision there's two uh guitar parts in the song and the first thing i did with it and not knowing what the roles are just seeing guitar parts I figured, okay, let's pan them left and right, see what happens. Okay, that's not working because there's a solo guitar at the beginning of the song, so that needs to be center. 
sometimes what you can wind up doing is automating your panning. And so you can have a guitar at center for some point of the song, and then you can have it move over to the left side while that second guitar comes in and it's panned to the right the whole time. So that was something else that I took a look at, but I felt like um, too often in the song that second overdub guitar had more of a lead part. So it just felt like it didn't have enough body to, to kind of match up the whole way through the song with having one guitar pan the full way to the left and the other pan hard to the right. So what I wound up doing was this trick, and, and you guys can use this too. I think uh, in general, it sounds better and wider if you can do exact overdubs of rhythm guitars like this and then just pan them wide. So just record the same performance twice, pan them hard left and right. But another trick you can do uh, is you can duplicate the track and then pan one of them hard left and one hard right, then push one backwards on your time grid in your DAW by 10 milliseconds and push the other one forward by 10 milliseconds. And that little bit of an offset is small enough of a delay that your ears can't hear it as a delay and instead it hears it as two separate instruments. So that's what I wound up doing with uh, the acoustic guitar main part. Yeah, that that's a that's a great uh, comment. And yeah, the the cutoff there it's called the Haas effect. What you're talking about, and I believe mm. the cutoff is somewhere around 30 milliseconds that your ear can perceive as delay. So anything above like 30 milliseconds, you start to hear as like a slapback. You actually hear, oh, that's two distinct sounds. Uh, anything below that, you you don't hear that. What you have to be just be careful of there if you're duplicating the part is the compatibility in mono. So. I, I also like that as a rule of thumb, mm. about 10 milliseconds. What I typically do when I use that effect is I will actually put my monitor controllers in mono, and then I will play with that. So maybe try 9 milliseconds, try 10 milliseconds, try 11 milliseconds, just to see what gives me acceptable mono compatibility, where my mono signal doesn't sound all wonky. It sounds still pretty good. And then when you take the mono off, whether you had 9 milliseconds or 11 milliseconds, in stereo, you're not going to be able to tell the difference, but you might be able to tell the difference in mono. So that's a nice, nice thing to mm. check. But yeah, really good trick. So you did that with the main acoustic part. Yes. Yeah. Okay. There was cool. a couple. There was a couple times in the song where. So what I essentially did was I wound up duplicating the track a whole bunch of times because I hate doing automation. So instead, what I'll do is I'll just duplicate the track and then I'll, um, I'll just pick what parts whenever, uh the guitars that I want, whether they're panned or not, or up the center, whether they're muted or unmuted. Mm. Um, so that's that's what I wound up doing. So some parts of the song, I actually have uh, the main acoustic panned hard left, and then that overdub hard right when they're doing similar things. Mm. But other parts, whenever they're doing different things, I just have uh, that Haas effect going on with the main guitar. And then uh, the what I would call, or the overdub or the lead guitar is up the middle. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, that is a good uh, good technique. I did something similar with the drums because I didn't want all mm. the drums to be coming up the middle. What I actually did was duplicated the that overhead mic a couple of times, and I made a stereo effect because I wanted, you know, overheads would be stereo, right? So I wanted kind of that, the rim of the snare to be almost like, 
coming through like a stereo pair of overhead. So I, I basically did a lot of like high pass filtering and low pass filtering on my different duplicate copies of that mic. I used one to kind of simulate a room mic and another one to simulate kind of like a overhead pair and get some width to the, uh, to the drums as well. Cool. Um, the only other thing I wanted to mention in my mix too, I've talked so much about it. <laughs> no, but, um, the last thing I wanted to, the one, last thing I wanted to mention too was I felt like the melodica was such a interesting and weird element to add in, and I decided that I was going to treat that as a synth part. Oh, that's and, exactly what I did. <laughs> is it really? Yeah, yeah. So in, instead of having it be a upfront element that's more like a lead instrument. I just decided to throw a crap ton of reverb on it and make it more like this ambient thing that's kind of uh, helping to fill in all the spaces that's and just so add funny, some man. energy in the song. That's That was literally my thought. I was like, I'm going to make this a synth, and I did a huge washed-out <laughs> hall reverb on it and to, to have it kind of fill in some of those gaps, like like butter on a toasted English muffin. And uh, yeah. <laughs> That's cool, man. Well, I mean, what what they say is great minds think alike, but yeah. um, so what this comes back to, why I wanted to mention that is you can use all these tricks or have this in mind when you're recording. So don't just think that you're limited by exactly what the sounds sound like that you're recording or have available to you. You can play around with tricks like this and say, oh, I want to use a harmonica in this song, but I know later that either whether I mix it or I ask my mix engineer to mix it, I want to let him know that my intentions were that this be a synth pad or this be treated like this. So you can do that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on to yours, Vadim. Yeah, let me play mine. So again, I'll do the same thing. I'll play the first little bar of the balanced mix and then I'll switch to mine. While you feel like Actually, when I listened to your mix, I was like, my freaking snare is way too loud. I just made this into, <laughs> I just made this into a metal snare. So um, that's probably <laughs> one thing I would go back and, and tweak. But yeah, so a couple of things that it, I struggled with, um, I'm still not 100% satisfied with the sound of that kick. I still feel like there's, um, I, the best way to describe it was it's a basketball bouncing off of like a concrete wall sound that all oh, the dreaded like basketball sound <laughs> yeah it's something in mid range. i ended up scooping out a ton of the mid-range um but i'd probably if i were mixing this uh like for a client i'd probably go back and try to tweak that a little bit more but other than that yeah i just i tried to create a little bit of a room mic situation with the uh with the drum kit i did that by duplicating the overhead track and basically sending it to a room reverb that I liked a lot and just doing some EQ on there and kind of blending that in with the kit to give a little bit more hmm. sense of space and ambience to the kit. Other than that, I did make my acoustic guitar element stereo. I did it a little bit differently than you did it. I used a kind of like a, a little bit of a modulation effect that just plays with, I blended a dr the dry signal with a wet signal, which is just kind of 
modulating the delay a little bit, like back and forth. Hmm. Um, and then I just blended that in again, just to give a little bit of sense of, uh, of space. And I ended up, I don't know if this was, I think I maybe like your approach a little bit better, but I ended up using the, the keys more of as my bass element. And, um, I did scoop out some mid range out of the guitars and the keys to, to make space for that vocal. I uh, really wanted that main hmm. vocal to shine through. And I was, I did the same thing you did, Ben. I didn't listen to the uh, the finished mix before doing mine, but for some reason, I ended up closer to to what they had. Um, I I kind of when I was mixing it, I did get the sense maybe because of just how few stems there were that this was supposed to be like an intimate kind of performance, and so I didn't go too nuts with like slamming things with compression or with um, Hmm. Even the reverbs I used were tended to be tighter reverbs. Like I didn't use a ton of huge reverbs. I uh, used kind of shorter room reverbs to give everything kind of a, an, a sense of intimacy was kind of what I was getting from the song. Um, but yeah, I really liked your mix. I, I really liked the width you got and um, the, the the balance of uh, the reverb elements I thought was really nice. Yeah. Um, I think that, well, you probably went with the correct mix or at least we can hear that that's what the artist was going for. So um, I guess the take home from that is, you know, if you're recording your own stems and you're sending it off to somebody else, give them references or tell them, I, I'm looking for my song to sound like this because as you can hear from what I did, what the artist did and what Vadim did, you can have three completely different mixes from the same stems. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, maybe let's do that. Let's play... Um... Let's play all three back to back. We'll play the artist mix, then I'll switch to Ben's mix, and then I'll switch to my mix. So you can just compare the three of them. While you feel like oh, 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 and I don't wanna let go. With Yeah, so definitely you can hear uh, the stereo image change from from Ben's mix to my mix. Mine was a little bit narrower, but it was a little bit wider than the artist's mix. So somewhere in between the two, and um, hmm. yeah, just three different ways to do it. I mean, they're all I think they're all good mixes, and I think what you said was great there. If you're whoever's mixing your music, they may ask you questions like, "What albums do you think sound good?" You know, in the genre, and the reason they're asking that is to get these this type of idea of like, well, what kind of are you going for big reverb sound or like a very intimate tight reverb sound? So giving that person as many references as you can is helpful. It is helpful because um, it's hard to get in the artist's head a lot of times, especially if they don't have previous music that's out there. Um, so it's really good to have those references uh, to, to be on the same page with each other. And I've told other friends this because I've had other friends in bands that have sent me their mixes and it's always the same story of hey we sent our music to this mix engineer and we're a little bit disappointed can you tell us what you think and so many times what i hear is not a bad mix it's just not what the artist was going for and a lot of times i just give them that feedback of well instead of just feeling like you know all is lost why don't you just go back and say hey you know we're looking for more of this sound or let's give these references so I think it's just important to realize that you can get a lot of different interpretations of the same music um, and that there isn't 
there isn't a objectively uh, yes or no, this is a good or bad mix. Um, there are things that like Vadim talked about earlier, there are elements that make up a good recording and a good song and a good mix, but, um, music as an art form is so subjective that what one person thinks is great might, somebody else might think is terrible. Yes. There's a lot of, within the, those factors we described as of what a good mix is, there's a lot of room to maneuver creatively and as we always talk about, these things can be difficult to explain verbally. You may Mm -hmm. not be able to explain in terms of dynamic range or whatever, what you want the drums to sound like, which is why it's so powerful to say, hey, this album right here, I love the drums. I love the snare drum on this album. A person who mixes a lot will be able to listen to that and may be able to decipher what's being done and what needs to be done to your snare sound to match that. So it's a very powerful communication technique. You want to mention uh, where people can download these, these stems and encourage people to uh, give this a shot as well? Yeah, I do. So uh, yeah, Vadim and I, we did this mix. I don't know if you're going to submit Vadim, but I'm definitely going to submit my mixes to the challenge and I'll probably post my mix or I might release it and post it on SoundCloud and then post that in our community, but I encourage yeah. everybody else um, that's listening to this, go download these stems. You can either go to uh, Lewitt, W-E-W-I-T-T, uh, dash audio.com, lewittaudio.com, and you can find out more information about that, or you can go to our DIY Recording Guys community, and there's a post uh, from Mark I think it's about the fourth or fifth post down. But if you scroll down, you'll see a VEC Lewitt Audio um, mixing competition. So you can just click on that. All you have to do is give them your name and email, and they'll send you an email where you can download the stems. And this is a great way to get better at mixing, to actually hear what really good recorded um, stems sound like. And this is just a fun way for us to all be uh connected uh and do the same thing together you know that are a part of this diy community and um listening to the podcast so i i love this thanks mark for um suggesting this this is a great idea all right well we hope this was helpful we don't do a lot on mixing but we hope this helped you guys understand a little bit about what the mixing process is intended to do and also a little bit about what good well-recorded stems sound like until Next time, this is the DIY Recording Guys reminding you to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Have a good one, everyone. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email, vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email, ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. 
Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.